1: My guest today is Harrison Forsyth, and we are, today we're going to talk about what is archaeology and how does archaeology help us understand our history. And I always ask my guest this in the beginning: what made you become an archaeologist? Yourself?
0: Yeah. Well, this is kind of complicated. Uh, so, obviously, when I was a when I was a, a young kid um i saw indiana jones at a relatively young age and i was always kind of fascinated with that character and all of those ideas now i mean keeping that in mind that indiana jones is um uh in, in practical terms uh not a very good archaeologist yeah i wanted at, to ask you know. <laughs> about that is
1: there, how good archaeologist is he
0: uh, yeah, so but, uh, you know, I, I did my undergraduate degree in classical studies. So I was, you know, learning Latin, Greek um, and taking, you know, ancient history and humanities courses. And I had an opportunity to go on a field school. And so this was about 10 or 11 or 12 years ago. I can't. I, can't, I, can't, I lose count sometimes. Um, and uh, so I decided to go. And um, I spent six weeks working on a field school in southern Italy Uh, excavating a Roman villa site and I just love the work so much I really enjoy all aspects of it and so I just kept kept on doing archaeology so after my field school uh, I volunteered on a couple of projects I began to um, specialize in which is what I specialize in now which is photogrammetry and that's the process of using photography and lidar scans to create um sort of photorealistic recreations of uh, archaeological environments and artifacts. So uh, as I got into that and began to specialize in a certain technology, um, I now what I do is I'm, I'm a photogrammetry specialist for a number of archaeological projects through the university of Victoria in Canada and uh, Duke university, um, Carlos III university in Madrid um, and etc. And so those projects are mainly located in Spain now. But um, since then, I've, I've been on probably at least a dozen archaeological Roman archaeology projects in Spain and Italy over the past 12 years.
1: What is it like to be in an archaeology, new brand new archaeology site? Is it exciting? Do you feel like, what does it feel like when you go and you don't know, don't know what to find? Or do you know what to find when you go to a site?
0: Yeah, so, well, that's a very good question, because, uh, and, and that sort of allows me to talk a little bit about the process, right? And I, I just want to sort of preface this by saying that, like, I'm not an excavation director, so, like, there's a hierarchy, of course, and. I'm um, now mainly operate as a as a specialist, but I'm usually just on the ground doing other work, filling in other gaps, like doing excavation or geophysical survey. So you're getting this sort of from a worker's perspective, let's just say. Um, and uh, so generally, before you go to a site, you want to survey the territory. So if you know, already know that there's something there, you might have sort of a scope of where you would like to do your survey um if you don't then you might be doing sort of a widespread survey which involves like field walking so you'd go out to um what generally these sites tend to be in farmers fields in large fields or um i want to ask is it
1: is it it hard to get a permit to do and do an archaeology site or how how difficult is that
0: yeah i mean it it depends on your relationship because at least in spain and italy the way that it works is that there is a superintendent who's basically it's sort of like a um a municipal bureaucratic position and that superintendent oversees um all of the excavations in that territory and that's the person who issues the permit from what i understand um and in in italy it's called the soprintendenza um and uh So that you get the permit for that person. And that depends on, you know, the relationship that you have, you know, with them, your credibility as a researcher, your credibility as an institution um, and things like that. So it really depends. Um, Other times, you know, there might be other people that are already working there, so they might not issue a permit. So knowing all of the sort of ins and outs of local politics is one of the um, things that you need to do when getting a a, uh, permit as I understand it, I've never, you know, held the permit myself because I'm not a director. So. So
1: how do you do the digging process in an archeology span site?
0: Yeah. So as I, as I was sort of saying before, um, you'll do a survey so that can include field walking or a geophysical prospection. And after that, you're going to identify areas of interest. So, um, the first thing that you do is you open up your, what you're called trenches. Um, so these are the, um, different sort of units in the ground that are excavated. So generally you'll start by clearing everything and then you will begin to excavate the topsoil, which generally is, um, all mixed up and it, there's no real archeological context. So it's treated a little bit differently. And then as you go down, you're going to identify different stratigraphic layers. So we call that stratigraphy, the strata. The different layers of uh, processes. So these could be either positive. So let's say somebody makes a mound or a wall falls down and collapses. Then that's going to be sort of a positive, a positive unit as we call it. Then you have negative units, which are sort of ditches and things like that. And and you can tell by the stratigraphy, you know, if somebody dug a ditch and then it got filled in and leveled out, then you can identify that. And then you'll find also. St- static units which are things like walls floors structures um, and so as we dig down we document every single layer we triangulate that position and have sort of a relative reference point we document any finds that are, that are recorded um, we do a drawing and in my nowadays what you do is photogrammetry which is you do a 3d scan and then uh, and then you dig down to the next layer because archaeology is a destructive process and that's the, the most important thing to remember and because it's destructive everything has to be documented properly and then submitted in the final report
1: um i want to well the how does how does kind of an obvious answer but how does archaeology help us understand history um why let's say Yeah. How does it understand, help us understand history?
0: Yeah. So this is a very interesting question that you're asking, uh, because there's some strange methodological cross sections or intersections that happen between the discipline of history, which is, um, understanding the past through, um, sources, whether they be, you know, written sources or, documentary sources and the history of through archaeology because archaeology is the study of human activity Mm. and one of the most common tropes that you find with archaeologists is that anytime somebody finds out i'm an archaeologist they'll either ask me oh so you dig up dinosaurs which is the most frustrating one which is no that's paleontology or they'll say something about aliens or something crazy like that um but archaeology, at its fundamental, um, at its sort of foundational purpose, is just the study of human activity. Any type of human activity that happens, you're documenting that, and that's going to tell you different things than, let's say, a purely historical analysis. So, an archaeological site might tell me what types of modes of production people were using. It'll tell me the types of materials that they that they had and that they used in their daily activity which might also tell me whether you have different cross-cultural contact uh indirect or direct so you know trade often results in you know roman artifacts ending up in places like japan (laughs) uh somehow you know through indirect uh for through indirect contact um uh which i mean that's an extreme example and I, i don't know if there's any evidence of that but um <laughs> but yeah so i mean you know that would be an, e- an evidence of indirect contact because we know that you know um that the people who lived in japan in during the roman period weren't in contact with roman authorities <laughs> yeah. so it might tell you yeah things about trade um it could tell you about modes of life um and uh, about different cultural aspects of the material culture of a particular society whereas history will tell you more about the ideas and the the more of the ideological aspects of um of life and culture in a given society so the two types of information they don't really um they're completely different they're used for answering different questions and so generally what archaeology can tell us about history uh, to go back to the original question is Exactly the things that archaeology can tell you. It can tell you what types of activities people were engaging in. And that's important because it can be used to either supplement or support historical analysis and vice versa. Uh, But again, I think it's always important to sort of compartmentalize those different types of information, because they will tell you very different things about a society.
1: I was. Do you have a certain when you go to an, you, you get clearance to go to an archaeological site? Do you have a certain time period that you are allowed to work within? Because I was watching a documentary by Tony Robinson and where he was. I think it was a mosque, Roman mosque that he was looking at, and they just had three days to cover. And then find this mosque, which is not not a lot of time for an archaeologist. I imagine, but do you have a certain time that you have to work within, or do you have unlimited time as how, however much you would like?
0: Yeah, so that's sometimes. So it varies, and it depends on the project. So there's different types of archaeology. There's public archaeology, and there's sort of private sector archaeology. So, um. A lot of the projects I work on, they're academic projects. So these archaeological projects, they rely on uh, student volunteers who are usually only available in the summertime. Uh, they rely on faculty who are usually teaching during the year and, and only available in the summertime. So an excavation, uh, usually a, a, a full a full season is usually four to six weeks for me for Mm -hmm. academic projects and one of the projects i worked on um it began in 1989 and it finished in 2014. it was a roman villa site that was directed by um, professor helena fracchia uh, at cortona which is which is um a really old um city town near perugia and that was going on for over 20 years so she she was excavating that site since the late 80s so since around the time i was born and it finished i finished out the last season in 2014 2013 or 2014 so sometimes it takes a long time but what you're talking about probably that that where they have 3 days that's called rescue archaeology so if they're um so in the private sector if you have a construction team a bunch of construction workers who are building you know a new subway or they're building a new house or a new building in a city or in the countryside if they find archeological material, they have to, by law, they have to, and this happens a lot in Spain and Italy, they absolutely have to call an archeologist or some archeologist to investigate that and then submit it to the local superintendent. So what they'll do is they'll say, okay, we've got three days, we wanna do a test trench. So they'll usually do a small test trench, maybe you know, one by one meter, um, depending on the, in order to identify the size of the site. And if they find significant evidence of a site of a significantly sized site, then they might go to a further stage. So stage one, at least in Ontario, you have different stages as well. So you have stage one, which is sort of test pits. then you have stage two, which is um, an extension of those initial investigations. Then you have stage three, which is a full blown archeological investigation in that case. Then that might even be, you know, if it's something important that would be like a UNESCO site, then if it goes to stage three, then that's going to end up being, you know, uh, appropriated for, for public use. At least that's how it works in in, um, in Ontario, to my, the province of Canada that I live in, to a certain extent. Um, but it's obviously more complicated in places like, you know, Italy and Spain, because there's just so much stuff everywhere. <laughs> so yeah so it really depends so it could be you know a rescue archaeology job or it could be if it's an academic um, research uh, investigation it could go on for 20 years but usually each season is four to six weeks
1: yeah do you have a historian on the site as well to help confirm and then not sort of deny that debunk theories or is there do you have to know a certain amount yourself
0: um, usually the director will will be familiar with all of the stuff. So I have a very good example of this. And well, interestingly enough, I actually am a historian. Um, I'm my p. I'm finishing my PhD in a few months, hopefully, uh, in history. So my master's degree is in archaeology. So I have my hands in a whole bunch of different projects all the time. Uh, so I'm I'm always there, and I'm you know going to be a doctor of history soon. So. Uh, it's, I, I mean, at least in, in those examples, but I work on one particular site, which is the it's it's called the um, Renebles um, Archaeological Project. And it's um, in the region of Soria in Spain, and it's through Duke University. This site is very important because it's a Roman military camp that was set up to besiege the Celtiberian town of Numantia. This is the probably one of the most well documented conflicts um, that occurred between the Romans and the Celtiberians because Appian writes a lot about it. Um, Also Polybius and the Scipios, the Scipiones, the the gens of the Scipiones were involved. And this camp, we know that this was, um, or at least we're we're pretty pretty sure that this military camp was um, the camp of a very famous consul uh, no- nobilior who was sent to um, besiege Numantia. so we have in that case we have a lot of historical evidence and we got into some arguments on the site because i'm again my philosophy is that you compartmentalize your historical data from your archaeological data like never never walk onto the site with your book and say well this must have been the praetorium or this must have been where they had the war elephants like you can't just take a book and try to you know impose that onto um, the site that you're working on. So what I do and what my mentor, uh, uh professor Helena Fracchia always told me is just let the site speak to you and whatever it tells you is what you're going to know. <laughs> um, is it, is it difficult to, if you let's,
1: let's say that the, there's a famous battle for just so that this is an example, obviously we'd know that happened, let's say the Punic Wars. Let us say the Punic War is one of the most famous, it's one of the most famous battles in the Roman Republic's history. But let's say that there is no, archaeology, no archaeological evidence that we find from this battle today, can we? So it's, it's a difficult to, let's say there's a battle, let's say this battle probably never happened, it's just a Made up story by the Romans. Um, this is again. This is just another example. Obviously, it didn't happen. But is it sometimes difficult to then debunk battles of history that supposedly happen? And uh, you know, they, we have no archaeological evidence. For for example, the Tethysburg Forest, if we have no archaeological evidence for this battle. Is it, is it harder to debunk this, or is what's that like?
0: Well, I think also, I mean, with those, um, from my understanding, again, I'm not a specialist on ancient warfare, but I do, I do know quite a bit. Um, is that my understanding? Is that as far as like ancient warfare goes, I mean, pitched battles are not; they're the exception rather than the norm. Things like raids and uh, and reconnaissance and uh, things like that are a little bit more. They're more common. I'm not saying that battles weren't common; they they yeah. did happen quite quite often but they're usually quite um, important historically. And if you have a well doc, like, like the, like, yes, like that, that one battle where, um, uh, where, where ver- Varus loses um, uh, or whatever I forget. I forget his name offhand loses a couple of legions yeah. and to which, uh, you know, Augustus or was it Augustus? I'm a little hazy on my, on that particular battle. Um, when he says, oh, I want my legions back! Give me my legions back!" Um, the fact that that was actually recorded by Roman, uh, by by Roman authorities, or and and that that story even proliferated, I think is enough to say, yeah, it probably happened. But what I'm really gonna now, this is where my my expertise kinda comes in, is that when you think about what is left behind. I worked at a Roman military camp and I can tell you, I found maybe little bits of things. We get bits of chain mail, stuff like that. We get some coinage, which is more common than anything, but I've never dug up, you know, a full panoply of armor or I've never, you know, found a gladius in the ground because all of this stuff after a battle happens, think about it, you know, I mean, depending on which side wins, um, yeah. the people are going to collect bodies. They're going to give them proper burial, possibly, uh, if there's anything of value, anything metallic, uh, it's not gonna stay there. Now people are gonna move that. People forage. people will go back to the site for 20 years and pick up things off the ground, probably. Now, the closest thing that you would probably find for evidence of things like battles or or combat um, are um, battlements, uh, parapets, uh, mounds, different sort of like ditches that people will 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 dig um stuff like that like that's the type of evidence that you're really going to find but unless it was some sort of really really unique situation you're not going to find a bunch of you know legionnaires lying around in their armor right
1: and um, uh oh uh... Uh, no am stuck right now uh... oh no that's okay yeah, no i actually did i want to ask this uh well, you how archaeology is quite a new, new field. So, how how have it devel- developed over the years? Like, how how from the early eighteen hundreds until today?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question because a whole bunch of stuff has happened, and and starting from maybe perhaps the nineteen forties, and especially in the nineteen sixties, um, archaeological method uh, in the twentieth century um, was most developed. Uh, That's, that was its, you know, main development period, because you look back to like, maybe perhaps even the late 1700s, early 1800s, um, around the time, for example, when they started excavating Pompeii, this was, you know, about two or 300 years ago. Um, the, they didn't have a, um, a process for identifying different types of activities. They didn't have a process for documenting, things as they went because their interests were obviously different so in a lot of cases you have you know some sort of wealthy aristocrat who's funding you know this excavation they hire a bunch of people from town to come in and dig and look for um you know statues and stuff like that they want to look for pretty things they want gold or you know Mm -hmm. um so it's not going to be well documented um to the extent that it is today now as we went into came into the 20th century Um, We still have a lot of these excavations by, you know, wealthy individuals like Sir Arthur Evans, for example, uh, or Heinrich Heinrich Schliemann, uh, who both of whom were were very prominent um, Hellenistic or or, uh, Greek archaeologists, Um, and they were still kind of doing the same thing. You had Heinrich Schliemann, you know, running around in Turkey saying, I found Troy, I found Troy, he's got his copy of the Iliad with him, and he's following generally pretty bad methodology and, you know, digging up all these grave burials and giving all the gold necklaces to his wife. And, like, it's pretty out of control, right? So um, that's still going on in the 20th century. But after the Second World War, um, documentation and and drawing did become better, uh, a little bit better, maybe into the 1920s and 30s. So, like, Adolf Schulten, for example, he's another German archaeologist who worked a lot in Spain. And I've worked on the the military site that I work on, he started that excavation in the 1920s, and I've seen all of the documentation. And they had very good engineers. They had very good uh, military German military engineers that were doing the drawings and taking all of the you know the levels uh, for the stratigraphy. So uh, I'd say probably around the 20th century, people started developing generally good practices. Um, but then in the 1960s, we get what's called the uh, processualist uh, archaeological, um, methodologies begin to get developed. And these, as, as as you tell by the name, these, uh, methodologies focus on identifying different processes, uh, in the, um, formation of an archaeological assemblage. And that's when we really start to get very scientific, like very scientific types of stuff. And then again, with like, you know, the advent of, um, of, of, you know, nuclear physics and, and other, um, chemical and, and physical sciences, we get things like carbon dating and, and stuff like that. Or, um, what's really cool now, is like a, a stable isotopic analysis where you look at bone collagen and you can tell, you know, what people were eating and whether they were moving around to different places and changing their diet. So, uh, in the last 50 or six, maybe 60 or 70 years, I'd say, um, Archaeology has become uh, fairly formalized in its methodology, and uh, which is great. And uh, but it also means that you know projects take a lot longer, and you know for other reasons there's less funding. But that's how it's sort of changed over the past you know couple hundred years. Have you ever gone to a site
1: and you found absolutely nothing, or do you know for certain that there is something there when when you go?
0: Well, I will tell you more times than not um i'll dig a trench and i'll find absolutely nothing and i'm perfectly fine with that because if even if you don't find anything you're still learning something about the site we might be aware that there's a roman military camp in this site we might be aware that we're digging within this roman military camp which is which is you know tens of square kilometers like yeah. it's it's ma- a massive amount of area but you know maybe we maybe we just missed the mark a little bit um so sometimes we find absolutely nothing but it'll still tell us, you know, as we're going down, we'll, you know, we make note of different geo- geological features, different uh, natural processes, such as, uh, you know, drainage of water, which moves things around. It'll, it'll tell us more about how um, nature has affected the site. So, and if we find nothing there, then we know that nothing's there and we can move on somewhere else. So it's not always a bad thing to find nothing.
1: And you told me that you work on computer, te- computer technology right now. And, and let's get into that a little bit because I want to talk to us. I want to talk about how does computer technology help us understand the site easier? It's because it's incredible to me that the computer technology can identify a skull. For, for, for example, if a Pharaoh would say that this is 4,000 years old, she lived until 35 or she was you're you know, you know sure it's probably a vegan or whatever. So, how how does computer technology help us understand, and is it accurate as uh, as a source to be trusted?
0: Yeah, well, so I mean, it de- it depends on what, like, on exactly which kind of computer technology. So, for, for survey, we have things like ground penetrating radar, or magnetometry, or geo list- uh, geo electric resistivity. And these are all methods of remote sensing that allow us to see if there's something under the ground before we even excavate. So, um, for example, with geoelectric resistivity, which is basically you use an ohm meter and you you know plug this battery, this ohm meter into the ground, you project an electric field, and then you just take resistance readings along a grid. Um, and then those readings, you can color code those readings on a map, and you can actually see oh, if there's areas of um, a higher resistance, then, you know, it's, it's harder for that electrical current to get to, to the ground, like to the actual bedrock. So something might be in the way, something like a wall. So we use map mapping using this type of technology in order to identify whether something is under the ground. Now that might be just a pile of rocks, but if it looks like, you know, a rectilinear structure, then we can say, well, that's very likely going to be, um, you know, it's going to be a, uh, a building of some sort or, you know, with magnetometry, uh, we might be able to identify, um, you know, a, a, this agglomeration of one particular type of magnetic um, uh, signature. And, and in some cases, you might be like, well, that might be a bomb from the Second World War. Or, you know, you might be like, well, we have to call explosive ordnance disposal to get ri- get rid of this. We have to call the army. You know, so that might happen too. So in that respect, it's, it's, it's accurate at telling you what it needs to tell you. But, you know, excavation is always best for those purposes. Now, if you're talking about carbon dating, like, or stable isotopic analysis, like, we know, like, it is a scientific fact that certain isotopes, um, decay at a stable rate. Like that is, that is just nature. That is just the most, it's, it's, it's as accurate as we know that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. If, if you get, you know, a carbon, if you get a carbon date, um, which is good out to, you know, a a few thousand years, um, and they're accurate in some cases up to, you know, maybe it might, it might be accurate up to about a decade or something or a decade or two sometimes, it depends. I haven't I haven't done a lot. I've processed carbonized fines, but I, I've um I haven't done a lot of carbon dating myself. It's it is expensive. You have to have five grams at least five grams of carbon and it's about, you know, five hundred dollars for a test, from what I understand. Um so yeah, I mean it's fairly accurate and it'll tell you, so Um, because sometimes like what happens is when you have carbonized material like let's say you have somebody you have a roman military camp there's people they're going to be cooking things they're going to be lighting fires and stuff like that but it's also located on a hill so between you know that 2000 year period maybe somebody else wandered up there a thousand years ago and said i i'm gonna have you know i'm gonna rest up on this hill for the night and then they have a fire so in that way, like carbon dating could be really accurate at saying, well, this carbonized materials from this era and this carbonized materials from that era. Um, so that's pretty accurate. Um, but then, yeah, then you get into other things like digital reconstruction. So digital reconstruction involves a certain amount of creativity. Um, like that's, you know, would be like, for example, using a game engine in order to rebuild what you think an archaeological site looked like but since most archaeological materials are 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 most most buildings that people actually occupied and most of the materials that people used were ephemeral things like you know like clothing or rope or thatching for a roof like they're all ephemeral materials or wood Um, so in a lot of cases we're missing a lot of these things so when you make a digital reconstruction that's um sort of based on a limited amount of knowledge then that type of accuracy could be really low but if you're using photogrammetry, which is what I specialize in, then you're getting basically a photorealistic representation of what you're um of what you're excavating yeah right um let's say we, we let's say for
1: example, i don't know how old it became but let's say he went again using the thirty five words years let's say he became thirty five years old, but the computer technology says but he actually became just 30 years old. Could it be that the computer is right, and the source, but the sources tells us how, that it got 35 years old, but that the computer technology is right, that it didn't, in fact, grow, that's just the, the sources being biased
0: in a way? Yeah, I mean, that's a possibility. In a lot of cases, if you have, you know, um, dissonance between two different types of sources, you have two options as an archaeologist. You can either find a way to mitigate that um, or, you know, make it a... You can identify which source is possibly more reliable than the other and you can in- make an inference based on that. But um, I think the the safest and most, you know, uh, conservative route to take would really just to be like, well, there's a there's a margin of error of about five years. So we can say that this is the, you know, the terminus antiquem or the terminus postquem, uh, you know, for this particular object or for this particular um, environment or this context, um, yeah, you, you could just say, you know, this is the earliest and the latest, uh, which is, I think, maybe the, you know, it leaves it kind of up in the air and it, and it allows other researchers to maybe, you know, um, make their own judgments about that. But, I, I, you know, in all honesty, the best methodology is to just be honest about what you don't know. Right. And we don't know everything because um, it's I, I had this I had this really brilliant history professor once who um, walked into the room and he just kicked a chair. And he said, did I just kick that chair? And I said, yeah, you did. And he's like, well, how do, how do we know that? And how is anybody ever going to know that? Is that something that's worthy of recording? We're going we're not gonna know, you know, how many people kicked which, you know, whichever chair, or how many times somebody, you know, flipped a coin in their hands, and we're we're never gonna know that, and that's perfectly fine, uh, as long as you know we acknowledge the limitations of of our um, of our respective ideologies, or of our um, not ideologies, but our, our fields of study rather. And
1: what are, what are you character working on? Because it sounds quite fascinating. You know, you mentioned you work in computer technology. So tell me about what mm-hmm. kind of computer technology is working on.
0: Yeah, so I, I specialize in the process of photogrammetry. Uh, so I can show you if you want to share your yeah. screen. Sp- if you if you let me share the screen. Um, um uh, or do I do the, do oh, it's disabled. More? that's okay.
1: Make host or allow multi pin?
0: Uh, I don't know if you just enable the share screen, uh, uh, you could, you could make me the host if you yeah, want. <laughs> no, I, don't need yeah. <laughs> I mean, you'll still be the the host, you know, obviously yeah, you the actual host. <laughs> okay. Uh, so here I just need to open it up. So um, again, so I do, I specialize in a process of called photogrammetry and photogrammetry is relatively new. Um, video game designers are using it to create video game assets now. Um, and it's sort of a buzzy, industry word right now, but in archaeology in the past 10 years at least, it's become almost standard practice. So what it is, is it's the process of taking photography, taking photographs and building a 3D mesh out of those, out of the topography that is recorded by those photographs and then putting a texture over top. So I'll show you exactly what I mean. I don't think you have shared a screen yet, so... Yeah, so here I'll just show you a picture yeah. here. So this picture here, can you see this? Oh yeah. So, like, what do you know? Do you tell me what you see?
1: <laughs> I'm basically seeing what looks like an old house, the, a fallen gra- fallen house that's that's in ruins.
0: It looks like uh, yeah. Maybe Middle East, maybe Egypt. I would say. Yeah. So this is um this is a three D model actually. This is just a screenshot of Ooh. one of the models that I made. So this thing isn't even real. This is this <laughs> is like a, a computer-generated image. That's clever. That's, that looks real. That looks real to me. That's how accurate photogrammetry is. It is amazing. So uh, here, I'm going to pop in. So again, because of the the, the delicate nature, um, I have to maintain confidentiality on the current projects that I'm working on. So I'm going to have to show you an old model.
1: Yeah, and
0: true. I've been given permission to show this one. And this is an old model, so it's not my best work but um this is I'm gonna show you. By the way a... this uh,
1: this for those of you just listening to the episode, you can find us on YouTube. I will link this episode in, onto our YouTube channel as well on, uh, in the, the in the description of the episode. So you can go to YouTube to my YouTube channel and you can see see the photos on the YouTube episode as well.
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. So th- that's good to know as well. So I guess what I'm showing right here is um, this is a 3D model of the uh, tombs. These tombs at Rocca Gloriosa in southern Italy. Um, these tombs are accessible to the public, of course. Yeah. So as you can see here, like you can see the you know um, little plants growing in the in the bricks of the okay. side of the tomb. Wow. Uh, it's quite quite accurate. Um, that's and really cool. basically. Yeah. So here I can show you. So if Jimmy, you see all pull these... that out. Huh? <laughs> pull that up, Jim.
1: Pull that shit up, Jimmy. Yeah. That <laughs> was a Joe Rogan joke.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so if you see all these little blue panes, yeah. these are all the photographs. So basically, you you go through and you systematically photograph as many points, mm. and then from those photographs, um, basically we build a point cloud. So you can see here this is actually sort of the basis for the model. And it's just a bunch of points mm. and they're all connected. And then you turn that into a dense point cloud. Yeah. So that's even more dense and then it becomes a mesh. And this is the textured mesh, but I'll show you what you're actually looking at. You're. This is what you're actually looking at. Mm. It's a wireframe that has a texture over it, mm. right? So it looks photorealistic. That's so awesome. um, but it's just, yeah, it's incredibly accurate. So that's what photogra- photogrammetry is. Again, this is an old, really old model. Yeah. It's probably about five or six years old. Um, it's not my best work, but it's a pretty good example, and it's one that I'm allowed to show people. Yeah, um, so that's
1: pretty, pretty good artists though to make this as well. I, I believe.
0: Yeah, it takes a lot of processing. So for each model, it takes um depends on it depends on the accuracy and the fidelity of the model so like for example like i i what i've done and what i specialize in now is i take these models and i build virtual reality programs where students and instructors and researchers can walk around these archaeological sites and examine things they can make annotations they can um, you know you can use it as a teaching tool and that's what I'm focusing on now. So sometimes I have to optimize the, cause they're just like any, I use video game software to design it, video game design engine. So I use the unity 3d right. engine. And so you have different, oh, am I here still? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're there. Okay, yeah, you Okay. Sorry. I think my connection just, yeah, got yeah. Cable. It's a new kind of stuff phrase for a while, but it's okay, it's okay.
0: Oh, it's all right. I'm back. So, so yeah, so I use, um the unity 3d engine. And what's interesting about that is, you know, I, you have to optimize your, um, your 3d, your 3d models so that they work on, you know, on a, on a smartphone or it'll work for, you know, a a PC computer or a Macintosh. Mm. So all of these different technologies have different requirements. So the fidelity or the quality of the model really depends on what platform I'm, I'm developing for. But, um, but it's really cool and uh, it's that's what I do. That's what I specialize in um, for my archaeological work.
1: So you can recreate what it probably looked like when it was when, when it, before it became around as well. I, I, right?
0: Well, there's there's also that. So that's a little different. That's more sort of like a reconstruction. And um, I do those as well, but I'm a little bit, I'm always very careful about, you know, making sure that I construct something that's, um, that's archaeologically accurate. So, for example, like the, all of the little um, uh, barracks uh, at the, at the military site that I excavate at. Uh, All of those barracks, um, they were made out of ephemeral materials and they had sort of a foundational wall that was maybe 30 centimeters high. But other than that, it was all ephemeral materials. So I can't make a reconstruction of that if I don't know what they used to build it. If they were cutting down just trees and making, you know, little cabins or if they had thatched roofs or if they were, you know, canvas or if they were in tents. Like, I I don't know these things. So I can't make a reconstruction of that yeah but something like that tomb I might be able to give you a representation of what that thing looked like in you know in the fourth century BC which is when that particular tomb dates to
1: yeah forgive me for if you've said this already but how long does it take for you to make this reconstruction
0: so this is uh this is so yeah there's a there's a lot of process that goes into this um so the actual process of data collection is the first one so that's when I take the photographs so normally I take the photographs in a parabolic um uh sequence so i sort of go around it and i form sort of a bubble around um the environment or the object that i'm recording and so that takes usually anywhere between about 70 to 200 photographs and i can do that in about eight minutes um because i can't like one of the main problems is like if if there's like a cloud in the way in one of the pictures and then no cloud then the lighting's different and that will affect it If, you know, if it takes an hour and the sun is in a different position and the shadows are different, like that'll, that'll make it really confusing for the software. So I have to do the data collection very fast. Now the processing is what takes a lot of time. So putting together the dense point cloud is usually the longest part of the, um, of the 3d modeling process. So that might take anywhere between four to 16 hours. I have, um, a 3d model of a shipwreck that I was telling you about earlier before the for the podcast and the shipwreck that's being worked on at Majorca, um the photographer took over 200 uh, 2000 photographs and it's you know a 3 meter shipwreck so that thing it's going to take 16 hours for me to process it but that thing is photorealistic that thing is the is the best example of underwater archaeology that I've ever seen or underwater phot- photogrammetry that I've ever seen so it really depends on what you're doing and and what your what the scope of your of your 3D modeling um ambitions are.
1: Again, if uh, you could send these photos on the email afterwards, I could also put them up when the episode is out. I should put them out on Instagram so people are able to see. Yeah, but take a look at them as well there.
0: Yeah, I have some photographs on Yeah, I'll send, I'll send them to you. I have a whole bunch. Awesome. But yeah, so yeah, I think we've covered
1: the basic right now and uh, of archaeology. It's been a pleasure to have you here. You're yeah, welcome back to the podcast any time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm like so before, I said
1: before. You go. Do you have any social media or anything you wish to promote that you will want to add in in the description?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I have a free, <laughs> I have a freelance um, sort of enterprise that I run. Um, uh, as, uh, for doing uh, digital media um, and photogrammetry for people, for people who are doing archaeology or history. And it's called histark3d.com. Um, so I can send you the link to that um, yeah. as well. But um, but yeah, so I mean, that's sort of my freelance enterprise. Uh, you know, I do contracts for universities. Um, I did a contract for the library and um, classics department at University of Victoria, uh, I've done contracts for York University, which is the university I'm based at in Toronto, Canada. Um, and, um, yeah, so I just do, you know, things here and there. Um, and I guess we'll see how that goes. Yeah,
1: I'm looking forward to hearing more from you. And uh, i am going to ask you again, before you go, on the scale from one to 10, 10 being the best, how accurate and how good of an archaeologist is Indiana Jones?
0: oh that's such a tough question he's like he's like my childhood hero um don't be biased, <laughs> though don't i mean that's like asking how good of an astronaut han solo is <laughs> I mean, like it, it's the same thing uh you know what indiana jones is a great adventurer and uh will always have a special place in my heart as an archaeologist indiana jones has very bad methodology uh he doesn't seem to do any of his teaching duties uh he's obviously tenure-tracked and never you at the university. five minutes
1: in one of the movies one minute, I think one minute in the university in one of the movies. I don't remember which one.
0: Yeah, yeah, you no, know, he he's in in the first one. So he's teaching in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He teaches at the beginning, um, and then his students, you know, hound him, and he jumps out the window. And then in um the Last Crusade, he's also at the university. Similarly, you know, getting hounded by his students. So he seems to have a lot of hold a lot of contempt. Uh, he has nothing but mockery and contempt for his students and, um, <laughs> and he doesn't seem to be a very good professor, mm-hmm. but that's okay. They probably just hired, you know, a contract person to pick up his slack, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. This has been h 12 We are on Instagram under well.h12. On YouTube under well.h12. A link will be in the description. If you're listening to this on Spotify, I would recommend go to the YouTube as well to see... If you want to see the photos that is shared on this episode, and uh, my name, my name is Alan. Alan, and this has been well that I well. Next week we will take a look at Sparta and the three hundred. Thank you for coming, and I will see you next time.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans.